Welcome to Season 4 of Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad, I'm an Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics, and I'm a practicing hemonk doc here at UCSF. If you like this podcast, follow us on Twitter, email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com, and you can back us at patreon.com. And with that, let's start the show. On this week's episode, we have a real treat. I have exclusive content. It's a lecture by Dr. Christopher Booth, professor of oncology, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, Canada. This is a lecture that Booth has given. It's gotten rave reviews, and he, through an exclusive licensing agreement with Plenary Session, has made this content available to the Plenary Session audience. You know you're going to love this. Stay tuned for that lecture. But first, I'm going to talk a few minutes about a little paper that came out of Lancet Oncology. You've been bugging me to talk about this. I haven't had a chance to get into my stock and trade oncology in a while. It's called the Memoir Study, a propensity score match analysis of a single longitudinal study looking at whether or not immunotherapy works better if you give it bright and early in the morning. You won't want to miss this discussion. Stay tuned. All right, I don't know how much I'm going to want to talk about this. I was supposed to do it in an episode with Bashal Gaywali, but we had some technical difficulties. We're trying to piece together that episode. This is a study that looks to see if outcomes are better if you received your checkpoint inhibitor for advanced or metastatic melanoma early in the day versus later in the day. And they dichotomized a continuous variable about time of day into the percent of people who get more than 20% of their checkpoint in infusions after 4.30 p.m. If you get more than 20% of your infusions after 4.30 p.m., you're considered in the late time of day group. And if you get less than 20% after that time, you're considered in the early time of day group. And they find, lo and behold, outcomes are worse if you get it, if you're in that late time group uh, than the early group. And they're rather dramatically worse. And then they have lots and lots of speculation that time of day has something to do with the efficacy of checkpoint inhibitors. Here's what I think is problematic. These kinds of observational studies are very, very difficult to do because the time of day somebody gets their infusion, it's not something that's just randomly generated by the computer. It's something that takes into account the type of person it is when they agree to come get their treatment and when the doctor tells the scheduling staff to schedule this person. So for instance, if you have a younger person who has a tough social situation and they have a lot going on in their lives, sometimes those patients tell you, you know what, I can't make a 7 a.m. lab draw or a 6 a.m. lab draw or an 8 a.m. lab draw. I can't be here that early. The earliest I can get here is 10.30, 11, noon, 1. Sometimes I can't get here till the afternoon. If you have a patient who works night shifts, they sometimes tell you something similar. I got to go home and take a nap. I can only come in the afternoon. And then the other thing that happens in medicine sometimes is you have a patient with just a ton of disease and you are really worried and you want to get them treated fast. And you say, what's the schedule look like? And the schedule's all booked up all the next mornings. And they say, well, you know, if we really wanted, we could push a slot. We can get the first treatment in, um, I don't know, uh, tomorrow, but it'll have to be like late in the day, 3, 3.30, 4.30, that kind of time. What do you think? And you say, I'll take it. I don't want to delay any longer. That's a problem. That's a confounding variable of the doctor, the patient scheduling couldn't fit this person in early in the morning, or they're not the type of person who wants to come in early. And that's a variable that has a lot to do with socioeconomic status, with disease burden, with what the doctor thinks the urgency of treatment is. And that's a variable that has a lot to do with how their outcomes might be. And that's a variable that these people just simply cannot adjust for. They have no idea. If those factors exist, they're not coded in the chart. They have no way to adjust for that. And for that reason, everything they tell you 
is going to be null and void. It's just not going to be useful. And you can propensity score match all you want, but propensity score matching cannot match on characteristics that are not measured. It can't match for the doctor's eyeball. It can't match for what was going on in the person's life that led them to that decision. The other thing about this study is that the absolute numbers are, you know, rather modest. 73 people, single institution, propensity score match cohort of 73. And even if you expanded that control arm to the broader cohort of 225 patients, more or less similar, you know, you find that um, it's still rather small numbers. It's not a multi-center study. Um, what would be the gold standard way to test this? I suppose the gold standard would be to, to take a multi-center, many, many places that are giving checkpoint inhibitors for melanoma, and to pull out all the people who are currently slated to get, they're slated to get more than 20% of their infusions after 4.30 p.m. And randomly assign them to no intervention or an intervention where we open up a Saturday morning slot or a Sunday morning slot or we change their day and we schedule them for a bright and early first thing in the morning when the rooster crows, checkpoint infusion, and we measure if overall survival is improved. And if this study were true, you would improve it substantively several percentage points. But I suspect that if you actually ran that randomized control trial, it would be totally and absolutely null. This is a long paper and it has a long editorial and it goes on and on about why, you know, there is a biological plausibility that the time of day would affect the immune system, which is true, and why that might work here. But um, that's just talk. Uh, you know, the proof is in the pudding. And the proof is you have to somehow experimentally randomly assign people to a different strategy and show improved outcomes. The other thing you could do is you could just take everyone scheduled for immunotherapy and create a new protocol where we're going to open a special building and we're going to randomly assign people to the old way of giving it whatever time they're going to get it. Or everyone is going to get that eye opener 4.30 a.m. or 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. or whatever they think the optimal time is infusion. And we'll see if it can improve outcomes. I suspect it won't. Because I think things like time of day is not that big an important driver of the outcomes of immunotherapy. I suspect what they have found is that time of day is a great surrogate for things that's hard to put your finger on, which is the person you're overbooking in your clinic. In fact, they say that you know some fraction of patients in their study, in their analysis, who got most of their infusions um, in the evening, they include if you get the first few infusions in the evening. Now, of course, the person who gets the first few infusions in the evening is the person who's very likely to be so sick you try to overbook them or fit them in no matter how you can. And so that's going to confound their analysis. And then again, I think we forget that like, you know, people who are struggling, who have young kids at home, who have obligations, who don't have loved ones to take care of those young kids, who have jobs that put them working at night, um, they have difficulty getting there bright and early in the morning. They may have to see their kids off to school. They may have to do some other things before they can make it there. Um, the types of patients that can only make it there in the afternoon or people who are habitually late to the appointment, they are not the same people. They don't have the same resources as people who can come there bright and early. Um, and for those reasons, those people might be destined to have poor outcomes irrespective of the time of infusion, just because they have a lot else going going on in their lives. Um, and socioeconomics, of course, is a driver of cancer and cancer outcomes. Um, so I think this study doesn't prove what people think it proves. I think it's honestly probably not what I would have put in Lancet Oncology, just because it's a small sample size, single center. I think if to get in Lancet Oncology, you'd want to replicate it in a few centers, I think. I think the reason it got in, of course, is that the more and more you talk about the potential diurian diurinal what is it diurinal uh, of course on this podcast everyone corrects my pronunciation a diurinal 
characteristic of the immune system. Uh, the sexier you talk about that, the the more likely you are to get it into a place like Lancet Oncology. But if you didn't spend all that time talking about it, you probably wouldn't. Um, yeah, I think uh, those are my main thoughts. It's not persuasive to me. You really want to test it in some randomized fashion if you believe this effect is real. I suspect some people will hang their hat on it. Those people would likely be wrong. The potential bias is large and is very likely to be the case. It's a confounding variable. And if I had to bet, I would strongly bet against any prospective randomized study that changed the time of infusion to an earlier time of day. I suspect there will be a null study. So those are my thoughts. What's up next? Chris Booth, Christopher Booth, professor of medicine. Great lecture. You won't want to miss this. It is literally a barn burner. People are, are raving about it. Chris Booth is getting all the praise he deserves. And in an exclusive licensing agreement, you can, I, can, I won't even be able to tell you how much money I, I had to get Christopher Booth for this. Literally the entire plenary session budget. We doubled that. You know, We took a loan out from the bank to pay Christopher Booth for this content. So um, he's a rich man now. He won't get any richer. And on that positive note, we'll turn to the lecture, Dr. Christopher Booth. Okay, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Queen's Department of Oncology Grand Rounds. Um, I'm very happy uh, today to introduce Professor Chris Booth. You all know uh, Chris, um, and he's here today to speak to us about value in cancer care. And I know that Chris, um, as a professor of oncology here, has focused a lot of his academic work on this, and certainly um, his work as a health services researcher, and now as uh, head of uh, the Division of uh, Cancer Care and Epidemiology. This has been a focus of his work previously, and I know that he's interested in um, translating a lot of the work he's done into policy changes and impacting um, impacting uh, how, how we change our behaviors based on the research he's done. So I'm uh, really looking forward uh, to his talk today. Um, uh, it's nice to see everybody here. And it's also nice to see some very special guests from around the world. Doctor, uh, we have Dr. Sarowi, Dr. Sullivan, Dr. Rajagopal, there may be others. So um, Chris, uh, looking forward to your talk. Thanks very much, Scott. And um, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to see many friends and colleagues here from uh, Kingston, as well as from overseas. I'm just going to go ahead and share my slides. So I'm going to speak today about um, something that I've been thinking about uh, really since the beginning of um, my foray into oncology as a trainee, probably circa 2004, which is the extent to which our treatments offer uh, benefit to patients. And uh, as Scott said, it's great to see such a wonderful turnout today from our friends and colleagues around the world. I think one of the reasons we might have so many people attending is there apparently were rumors on the internet that the lecture today would be about Canadian oncologists and their underwear. So in any case, uh, that might've been why we had such a good turnout, but we'll just have to see where this goes. By way of disclosures, um, I have no uh, relationships with the pharmaceutical industry, um, although I do have some other disclosures worth mentioning. I, uh, I will say at the outset, this talk may be um, controversial. I may say some things that people disagree with. Um, I hope it's provocative and not boring. There may be some photos uh, which are somewhat scandalous, but we can discuss that in the question and answer. But um, uh, on a serious note, 
the, uh, the issues discussed today pertain to all health systems. This is an issue that all of us in the cancer care ecosystem need to think about, need to work collectively on. This is not just an issue that applies to low resource contexts. This is an issue that all of us must face as um, providers of cancer care. Over the next 40 minutes or so, I'm going to be fairly critical of our field, and um, I'm going to raise these issues because I think these are these are tough issues that we need to speak more openly about and collectively uh, conceptualize how we can move forward towards a better cancer system in the future. But I do want to start by just giving some background about why I went into oncology. I think what you know, drew many of us to the field, which is really what it comes down to is these incredibly rich, special and privileged relationships we have um, between uh, physician and patient. And I think we need to remember that this is really the cornerstone of everything that we do. And as part of that, what I consider the essence of oncology or the art of oncology is the delivery of compassionate care. And I think at the end of the day, that that is the cornerstone of everything we do. That compassionate care might include treatments. And if we're giving treatments, it should be treatments that make a real difference. And all of us can imagine in our oncology toolbox that some of our treatments provide very large benefits to our patients. And these should be recognized, celebrated, and we should ensure access to all patients who could benefit from these treatments. However, on the flip side, um, there is growing concern and recognition that many of our new treatments offer small, and I would argue in some cases, no real benefit. And this, this causes harm to patients, and is something I think we need to speak more openly about as we move towards a system of higher value cancer care. In the classic children's folktale, a vain emperor is fooled by two swindlers who pretend to weave him a new robe. They dress him in a robe which is actually invisible, but the emperor is too proud, and he does not want to appear foolish, saying that he cannot see the cloth. So instead, he parades around town wearing nothing at all. The townspeople also do not want to appear foolish that they cannot see the robe, and so they play along with the charade until a young child states the obvious, which is that the emperor has no clothes. We're gonna come back to this theme and this folktale um, over the next half hour or so as we talk about a few of the key messages I hope to convey. The first is that um, I will argue there is a crisis in the value of cancer care. And as part of that, we need to work on both fronts. We need to ensure that all patients, regardless of where they live, get access to the medical treatments that really matter and make a real difference. On the flip side, we should no longer settle for marginal and toxic therapies. Our patients expect better and we can do better. And finally, as part of this, this comes to the role of advocacy and I would argue activism as constituents of the cancer care system, as patients, as investigators, and as clinicians, all of us need to speak up when we see elements of our cancer care system in which the emperor has no clothes. As I mentioned at the outset, I'm gonna be somewhat critical of our field, but I do wanna start with a disclaimer. And there are clearly um, problems with the design of some randomized controlled trials in oncology. I'm not gonna to touch much on um, the methodologic challenges inherent uh, in clinical trials. Um, but I do wanna say that despite these problems with trial methodology and the issues of value that we'll discuss over the next little while, 
I want to you know, make it very clear, I remain a huge proponent, proponent and advocate for the randomized controlled trial. And this really should remain the gold standard of how we identify new therapies for our patients. Um, there's a lot of chatter and discussion within our field about the possibility of abandoning the randomized controlled trial and replacing it with observational data from the real world. And uh, you know, as someone who has really built my career using real world data, there are clearly many things that we can do with real world data. We can measure access and quality outcomes, disparities, inequities, system performance. But the one thing that we cannot do very well with real world data is identify which treatments help patients. And so I just wanna be very clear that randomized controlled trials cannot and should not be replaced by real world data. Okay, so let's shift to the concept of value. A lot of discussion related to value has to do with the cost of cancer medicines, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, this is a paper from Vinay Prasad and his group uh, tracking um, prices over the last 40 years, showing that while median household income in the United States has remained relatively stable, there has been a clear um, explosion in the price of new cancer medicines. And we're now living in a context where the average annual price of a new cancer medicine in, uh, in Canada and the US is approaching $150,000 per year. Um, this is a, a paper published by our own group just a few months ago, led by Dan Myers, in which we explored trends amongst the world's major pharmaceutical companies over the last decade. And what we did was we tracked their sales revenue and we classified the revenue as from cancer medicines or non-cancer medicines. And as you can see here in the orange curve, there has been a remarkable shift in the financial ecosystem of global pharmaceutical sales, whereby we've seen a 70% increase in the revenues from cancer medicines, and at the same time, an 18% decrease in the global revenue of sales for non-cancer medicine. So clearly there are massive financial pressures driving a lot of the topics we're gonna to discuss today. And this does lead one to ask some, I think, big picture questions. And has this massive reallocation of resources led to a proportional improvement in the outcomes uh, at the patient level at the population level? And I, I would argue the answer is no. And I think this leads to some tough questions that we're gonna need to conceptualize as a community as we think about what our cancer system might look like in the future. So coming back to the concept of value, the way I conceptualize this as a clinician is uh, value is the interface between magnitude of benefit, how much our treatments help patients and the cost. And I think a lot of the discussion focuses on the cost. And I believe as oncologists, we need to continue to push back speak out and advocate against the outrageous prices of cancer medicines. But at the individual level, as oncologists, we actually don't have a lot of power on the denominator here, which is the price of cancer medicines. However, where we can take ownership is the numerator, the magnitude of benefit. We are the individuals who design trials, write guidelines, make recommendations to our patients. And so I think we can take some ownership about how we approach the magnitude of benefit. The key questions that I believe we need to consider in this context is what is the endpoint that was improved in the relevant trial? What is the effect size of that improvement? And do both of these things matter to patients? We're gonna to touch on both endpoints and effect size over the next few minutes. So I'll start with um, endpoint. 
So this is um, a commentary I wrote now a decade ago with uh, my colleague and mentor, Dr. Elizabeth Eisenhower. And this was in the relatively early days when progression-free survival was being increasingly used as the primary endpoint of oncology trials. And it's worth remembering that response rate and progression um, were designed to help early phase trialists in the context of phase one and two trials identify therapeutics that have potential to move forward into the phase three context. At no point were these tools ever designed to inform RCTs and certainly not to inform clinical decision-making, but we now find ourselves in a context where PFS is really the king of oncology. And so a decade ago, Elizabeth and I asked the question, is progression-free survival meaningful or is it simply measurable? And I'll certainly acknowledge there are a handful of circumstances where it makes a lot of sense to use progression-free survival, but I would argue the vast majority of settings in which we're using PFS, it is measurable, not meaningful. And when it's measurable, it's measurable with a number of fatal, very fatal flaws. This is a classic slide from one of my other mentors, uh, Dr. Ian Tannick, and as Ian taught us in training, um, across all of medicine, there's only two goals of therapy, and that is to help our patients live longer and live better lives. And so with that in mind, um, it follows that the most important primary endpoints of our randomized controlled trials should be overall survival and quality of life. And as Dr. Tanik asks in this very provocative slide, what should we call an agent that increases progression-free survival but has no effect on overall survival and adds toxicity. I would argue that many of our new cancer medicines are defined by this statement. And Dr. Tannick would argue, and I would agree, that we should actually call these agents harmful. And so this is obviously, I'm probably pushing the limits here a little bit to be provocative, but I think we need to get back to the core essence of what it is we're hoping to achieve as oncologists. And I'm gonna ask a series of questions for us to conceptualize. And I hope that in the discussion later that there might be some ideas that come out, which is why has our field completely embraced progression-free survival? Have we forgotten the essence of cancer care, which is to deliver compassion as well as treatments that help people live longer and better lives? And in keeping with the title and the theme of this lecture, I would propose that many of our treatments are naked, but oncologists see lavish robes. I'm gonna back this up now in the next few minutes. This is a paper uh, published recently um, by our group, uh, led by Andrew Robinson and Mike Brundage, where we actually take this concept to the ground and we ask patients what they think of progression-free survival, but we don't use those words. I have great concern that the third word in that phrase is what patients and even clinicians hear, survival. And so this was a pilot study of 20 patients on palliative chemotherapy, so they know what life is like on chemotherapy. And we didn't use the word PFS, but we undertook a discrete choice experiment where we gave them hypothetical treatments to choose, where we were very clear that the treatments would have side effects A, B, and C. The treatment would not help them live longer, but would control tumor growth on CAT scan for a period of time. So effectively, we described PFS without the survival. And it became very clear that as patients went through these exercises, the vast majority, 17 out of 20, said, looked at us and said, 
are you crazy? Under no circumstance would I take a treatment that has side effects, that doesn't help me live longer, that doesn't improve my quality of life, but just shrinks tumors on a CAT scan. A couple of patients said, well, we would do it, but they would do it for 18 or 24 months of disease control and imaging, not, not the usual six weeks or eight weeks that we see in clinical trials. And as expected, one patient would say they would take any treatment for any benefit. And so this is obviously a pilot study with a small sample. And we now have a CIHR grant. We're doing this at a multi-center way now across several Canadian centers with 100 patients to follow up on this data. But I think that it's clear to say from this early data signal that patients know when the emperor has no clothes, even when their doctors do not. We're going to shift now from endpoints to effect size. This is a famous paper uh, by Tito Fojo and colleagues published now almost 10 years ago, in which they reviewed all FDA drugs approved for solid tumors over a period of 12 years. It's 71 drugs. And again, within this group of 71 drugs, there were clearly some home runs. There were some drugs that had major benefits for our patients. But when you look collectively at all of these drugs that are approved and used now every day around the world, the median gain in overall survival was two months. And this obviously is sobering. And I think we need to reflect on that, especially when we consider that in the real world, these gains are almost certainly even smaller. A major addition to the conversation on value in cancer care were the frameworks that came out, um, ESMO's Magnitude of Clinical Benefit Scale and the value framework that came out from ASCO. And so our group um, uh, applied these in the fairly early days to a cohort of clinical trials to get an idea about where we are going. So this is a piece of work led by uh, my former resident, uh, Joey Del Paggio, together with the team of investigators from Canada, India, and the UK, where we applied the ESMO scale to a cohort of 300 RCTs of breast, lung, colorectal, and pancreas cancer published over five years. In keeping with the principle of equipoise, about half of these trials were, were positive. I say positive because these met statistical significance for the primary endpoint. But when we applied the ESMO framework to these quote unquote positive trials, we found that only 31% of those met ESMO's threshold for clinically meaningful benefit. This translates to only about 15%, 1-5% of all oncology trials. So clearly our oncology clinical trial ecosystem is remarkably inefficient and we need to have some serious discussions about what it is we're trying to achieve. This is a follow-up study um, published the same year in Lancet Oncology, where we asked, uh, I think, a pretty practical question. This is a question that most of us would be able to answer every day based on our life outside of the cancer center. And the question is, as we know, if you spend more money, do you get a, a larger house? If you spend more money, do you get a faster bicycle or a nicer bottle of wine? And we asked this question in the context of cancer medicines, and we found that not only is there no association between the magnitude of benefit and drug cost, if anything, there's an inverse relationship whereby the drugs with the smallest benefit have the largest cost. Now, listen, I don't have an MBA, but clearly this system is broken and needs some careful recalibration. Let's shift now to what we've learned in looking at clinical trials um, historically and where we might be going with the concept of effect size and endpoints with value in cancer care. So this is a body of work now we've been doing for, for over 15 years. Um, at, we call this the evolution of the randomized controlled trial in oncology. And so the first 
paper in this series uh, was published when I was finishing my training at Princess Margaret Hospital under the direction of Ian Tannock and Monica Krizanowska. And in 2008, we published the evolution of the clinical trial in the era of cytotoxic chemotherapy, in which we looked at clinical trials from the mid-1970s until 2004. A few years later, we published uh, the second uh, installment in Annals of Oncology, where we looked at the, using the same methods, we tracked clinical trials in the early era of molecular oncology, 2005 to 2009. And earlier this year, we published the most recent iteration in JAMA Oncology, where we describe using the same methods, the same cohort, we look at clinical trials in the era of precision oncology. This allows us to get an idea of where we have come from and where we are going as a field. So the clinical trial, uh, the RCT became the gold standard in oncology in the 1970s. Um, this is the methodology we've been using now to track trials really over the last 40 years. We look at all systemic therapy trials in breast, colorectal, and non-small cell lung cancer. We are interested in practice changing widely read high-impact trials, so we restricted this to the major journals of our field. And so the most recent installment, we looked back over the last decade, which we call the era of precision oncology, and we identified 300 RCTs of drugs in these three major cancers. This figure, I think, um, highlights one of the major trends we've seen over 40 years. So you can see in the, uh, the gray curve, a massive shift in the funding of clinical trials in oncology. In the 1970s and 80s, most clinical trials were funded by government grants um, and uh, non-governmental uh, non agencies. You can see here, we've now shifted to a place where 89% of oncology drug trials are funded by the pharmaceutical industry. We can also see a major change in endpoints. In the early days, it was driven by response rate, and then we moved towards overall survival as the primary endpoint. And it looks like in many ways we're regressing. Overall survival as the primary endpoint of trials has been decreasing over time now, just about 30%, but look what's skyrocketing. The use of progression-free survival, we're now in an era where almost half of our oncology trials are designed to detect improvements in whether a tumor is growing or shrinking on a CAT scan. What did we learn from this cohort of trials? Well, again, we saw that the principle of equipoise is alive and well, as about half of trials were positive, meaning they met their primary endpoint. But look at this, which factors are associated with whether the trial is likely to be positive? And trials which use progression-free survival as the primary endpoint are much, much more likely to meet their endpoint compared to trials which use overall survival. There, there's no secret here about why most trials are now using PFS rather than overall survival. I will acknowledge there are some circumstances where it makes sense to use progression-free survival. We'll touch on that later, but I would argue that the vast majority of circumstances, this is not the case. And when we looked at the effect size, amongst those trials, which improved overall survival. So this is a very small proportion. We found very consistent with Tito Fojo's seminal paper, the median gain is about three and a half months. So what can we learn from looking back over the last decade of oncology trials? We found that industry now funds almost all drug therapy trials. Now listen, we need our pharmaceutical partners to fund clinical trials. Many of our important cancer medicines come from drug company funded trials. So I'm not proposing that we abandon industry as partners in trials, but what about all of the important questions that matter to patients which are not of interest to industry? Clinical trials of lifestyle, diet, 
exercise, meditation. What about trials which will investigate de-escalation of care, which is less toxic and more convenient for patients, or clinical trials about how oncologists can improve their communication skills? We clearly need greater investment by government granting agencies and philanthropic organizations to ensure that we can answer other questions which matter to patients. We've also seen a huge shift in use of professional medical writers. In the most recent years, we're seeing two thirds of oncology clinical trials led by senior professors at major universities around the world. These papers are actually written by paid staff from the pharmaceutical industry. So this is, I think, deeply problematic. This is contrary to really many principles uh, we hold dear within the university. Um, I mean, it's difficult for us to imagine a scenario which we would deem acceptable in which an undergraduate student in history pays someone to write their term paper or a PhD student pays someone to do the analysis and write up their doctoral dissertation. So I think we need to come back to what it is we're all about in the academy. I would argue it is unlikely this influence has a neutral effect. Coming back to endpoints, we've seen that PFS is king trials are most likely positive. And again, just to drill home, there are a handful of circumstances where progression-free survival has been proven to be a valid surrogate for overall survival. And I think it's very reasonable to use PFS in this context, but in the vast majority of cases, that is not the case. And a number of groups, including Bishal Gawali and others, have shown that progression-free survival in itself is not an adequate surrogate for quality of life. I think we also need to reflect on these improvements in survival. Clearly within the last decade, there's been some therapies which have had a remarkable improvement and a large benefit for our patients and those should be celebrated. But when you look at all comers, the median gains are modest. Are we delivering high value care and treatment which matters to our patients? Is the bar too low? And as mentioned, there's growing recognition of something that our group has called the efficacy to effectiveness gap, whereby the benefits we see in trials are almost always smaller in the real world where patients are older and sicker. Now, listen, I don't wanna take away the potential meaning of a couple extra months of life for any patient. These are obviously complex decisions, but I think we need to remember that these small benefits need to be balanced against real, real risks to our patients, the risk of side effects, potential harm, and the risk to their time. So this is something we've just written about recently led by Adam Funditis, my former fellow now working at the BC Cancer Agency, which is the concept of time toxicity. And this is an essay we published just recently in JAMA Oncology. And as we write, time spent pursuing cancer treatment in waiting rooms, emergency rooms, and chemo units is time that cannot be spent fishing, traveling, or visiting with loved ones. This trade-off becomes most pressing near the end of life when time is short and many treatments offer small benefits. I think this is something that we need to grapple with and start discussing as a community. Oncologists do not often use words like time toxicity. This does not come up, I think, very often in clinic rooms. But patients want to know where and how they're going to spend their time. There is a very nice um, paper recently published by Bang and colleagues where they actually track patients on palliative chemotherapy for pancreas cancer. And there's reason to believe from this study that it may be that any added life from chemotherapy in this context, there may be a direct trade-off that any extra weeks of gained life might be weeks and days that are spent pursuing cancer care. These are complex decisions um, that are gonna vary from patient to patient, but I think we need to generate data 
ideally capture this data in the context of RCTs so that we can have more meaningful discussions with our patients. So stay tuned on this space for, I think, a very provocative essay um, coming out um, soon by my friend and colleague Arjun Gupta. I now want to shift to the global context um, and just to kind of start by commenting on what I see as the global cancer paradox. And all of us who work in high income countries have seen a steady increases in volumes uh, of cancer over time, but these rates are actually exploding in low middle and upper middle income countries. As these countries undergo a demographic transition, they also are undergoing an epidemiologic transition whereby non-communicable diseases, including cancer, are becoming major threats to public health. And the paradox I think all of us need to take some ownership for and work on is the fact that two thirds of global cancer deaths in the coming years will occur in these lower and middle income countries where we currently spend only 5% of global cancer resources. This was another um, study uh, just published actually again this past year in, in JAM Oncology led by our former resident Connor Wells. Um, where we explored where are we going with value in clinical trials at the global level. And again, this was um, led by a team of investigators uh, from around the world, really kind of, I think, representing some of our deep friendships, partnerships, and collaborations through the Global Oncology Program that we've been very uh, fortunate to develop here at Queen's over the last couple of years under the vision and direction of our department chair, Scott Berry. And so suffice it to say, there are huge disparities in cancer care globally. One does not need to leave Canada, by the way, to see these inequities, which we can find in vulnerable populations within our own country, as well as low resource settings worldwide. I think this should matter to everyone. I think we need to learn from each other. These issues do not pertain just to low resource settings. These are relevant in all health systems. So in this study, um, again, we tortured a team of medical students uh, and residents to review every clinical trial in oncology published over a period of four years. We had 700 RCTs testing new approaches to surgery, radiotherapy, and drug trials. Clinical trials were classified as being led by high-income countries or low- and middle-income countries. 92% of trials are led by investigators in high-income countries, and we found a mismatch in where we are conducting trials and in what diseases we are conducting trials. Breast cancer and blood cancer proportionally are overrepresented in the portfolio of clinical trials, while cancers that are classically associated with poverty are underrepresented. As we show here in this figure on the left, we rank cancers globally by their proportional mortality. And you can see here when we rank trials or diseases by the proportion of clinical trials, you can see here that cancers like breast cancer proportionally have more trials than they do by mortality. Same thing for some of the hematology cancers, but look at some of the cancers which disproportionately affect patients from low resource constructs, gastroesophageal cancer, vastly understudied, liver cancer, understudied, cervical cancer, understudied. There are also really important lessons here that I think challenge you know, the historical paradigm of global health, which is that actually investigators in high income countries, we need to wake up because we can learn a lot from our colleagues in low and middle income countries. So this really gets to what we conceptualize as bi-directional learning of global health. When we look at the clinical trials that were led by lower middle and upper middle income countries, they were smaller, they were more pragmatic, 
they were more likely to meet their primary endpoint. And in fact, when we look at positive trials, the effect size or the magnitude of benefit was larger. Effectively, our colleagues in lower resource settings do not have the luxury to design mega trials to detect trivial differences. And I think that as investigators in high income countries, we really reflect on this and think about how we might design more efficient clinical trials going forward. This was another, I think, provocative finding from the trial from the study, which is I think we found evidence of what we have called publication prejudice. And so in the figure on the left, we look at the impact factor of where these trials were published. And you can see the green bar are trials that come from low middle and upper middle income countries. The blue bar is trials from higher income countries. And you can see here that much higher impact journals, the, the trials from high resource settings are published in much higher impact journals. Now listen, even when we adjusted for whether the trial was positive or negative, on the right, we see these are all positive clinical trials. So we've controlled for publication bias based on whether the trial is positive or negative. You can see here, and in fact, we showed that a positive trial from an LMIC is still published in a much lower impact journal than a negative trial from an HIC. So I think this speaks to kind of really structural levels at the level of uh, structural issues at the level of the health system. Um, and I think journals, editors, and reviewers need to be mindful of this, especially given what we've just seen, which is that we can all learn a lot from these very pragmatic and important trials being done in low resource settings. So some of the key findings, the current uh, RCT ecosystem is dominated by high income countries, uh, cancers which matter from a global health point of view are underrepresented. I'm not suggesting that other cancers are less relevant. I'm just saying that there's an imbalance right now in where we're putting our time, effort, and energy when one looks at the global mortality and burden of cancer. We've seen that most clinical trials are funded by industry and they're testing drugs in the palliative setting. I think this is important because even as medical oncologists, we need to retain some humility and recognize that most patients globally who are cured of cancer, they're not cured from our drugs. Some of them are, but most of them are cured by the scalpel or radiotherapy. Yet we see that only 13% of RCTs are testing new innovations in radiotherapy or surgery. We see market use and alternative endpoints, and we see these constructs of publication prejudice where RCTs from lower resource settings are smaller, more likely to be positive, and identifying larger benefits. In short, they're more likely to be pragmatic clinical trials. So we've talked about some of the challenges about low value care, low value research. I just wanna pivot now and let's, let's go to the idea of high value care. And so there are clearly some treatments which make a huge difference. And so are these accessible to patients in all systems? In any case, now let's move to another topic uh, that's very dear to my heart. This is the concept of the cancer ground shot. So this is a piece published in Lancet Oncology written a few years ago by Vishal Gawali, Richard Sullivan and myself in which we articulate that I think, you know, moonshots are important, but moonshots may improve care for some patients in 20 years. And we need moonshots because that is aspirational science that will define the treatments of tomorrow. But actually ground shots are needed to implement the knowledge we already have. And we can have a profound impact on patients with cancer now, if we ensure that all patients have access to the treatments we already know work. Now, as a student of history, I'm quite interested in kind of, you know, the historical underpinnings of where did this concept of ground shock come from? Now, this is actually stuff I've been working on now for about 20 years, but I was never smart enough to come up with a witty title. 
but I know two of the guys that did. And so this is actually quite remarkable. So these two handsome fellows, um, both of whom are very close friends and colleagues of mine. So Bill McKillop, a uh, now retired but senior radiation oncologist and uh, department head of epidemiology here at Queen's University, and Vishal Gowali, uh, a junior faculty oncologist and scientist here at Queen's. I think it's just remarkable that these two guys from different generations, different parts of the world, both of whom ended up at Queen's, came up with the similar concept literally within a handful of weeks of each other. Bill spoke about what he called the earth shot at a very important lecture he gave at the Tata Memorial Hospital. And at the same time, literally within weeks just before that, Bichelle in a blog for eCancer formally proposed the, con the cancer ground shot as a concept. So I think this is really kind of interesting as the history in our field. So let's look at some examples of ground shock questions. So this is a paper published very recently in Lancet Oncology led by my former fellow Adam Thunditis, who is now an oncologist at the BC Cancer Agency. The World Health Organization Essential Medicine List is updated every two years. And uh, this is work that came out from a number of us uh, who have the privilege of serving on the working group, the cancer working group for the WHO EML. The EML undertakes a rigorous review of the benefits and harms of medicines across all diseases and prioritizes this. The goal here is to help policymakers prioritize medicines to guide procurement, allocation of resources to ensure that in the context of universal healthcare, patients globally have access to medicines which matter. And this process really has most relevance in health systems which do not already have in place their own formal process for health technology assessment. So we call this the Desert Island Project. And so a number of us were interested in moving beyond boardrooms of Geneva. And there's this very kind of elaborate process to come up with the list, but we wanted to go to the ground and understand what medicines on the front line do oncologists consider the most important? Is there agreement between the EML and these high priority medicines? And are these medicines actually available on the front lines? And we call this the Desert Island because the fundamental question that we had in this global survey was anchored on something that many of you may have done as, as thought experiments before at parties. So for example, if you were moving to a desert island, they could only bring three books, what would those books be? If uh, you could have uh, dinner with any famous person other than Bishal Gawali, who would that person be? And so the question that we asked in this was, imagine your government has put you in charge of selecting anti-cancer medicines for your country. You are only allowed to select 10 medicines that they will be available to treat all cancers in your country. Which drugs would you recommend to your government to achieve the greatest benefit for the most patients? Assume cost is not an issue. Moving to the results. We had a thousand respondents from 82 countries. And I'm very grateful. I think many people on the, uh, on the lecture today uh, helped disseminate this study and participated in it. Two thirds of respondents were from high income countries. About a third were from UMICs and LMICs. And when we looked at the drugs, which were most commonly selected, we had a top 20 list. The vast majority of these are old chemotherapy and hormone drugs. In fact, most of these were approved more than 20 years ago, and these are the drugs which we know have large benefits. They also happen to be drugs which are generic and very inexpensive. 19 of these top 20 selected medicines are already on the EML, and we saw a substantial convergence across all health systems. This is a snapshot of the overall results you can see here. 
more than half of respondents chose doxorubicin as uh, they wanted to take to their desert island, about half cisplatin. You can see again, there's a lot of external validity here. These are the drugs we know with big benefits, doxorubicin, cisplatin, paclitaxel, carboplatin, 5-FU. Pembrolizumab made it on the list. I can say this was driven by oncologists and HICs. But I think it's worth reflecting that there are some new and relatively expensive medicines on this list, but generally it's those medicines which have large benefits, trastuzumab, rituximab, imatinib. And so I think oncologists really want access to medicines that really help patients. The next part of our paper was the part that I think should be sobering and a call to action for the global oncology community. Despite the fact that most of these drugs are old, generic, and cheap, they remain incredibly unavailable for the vast majority of patients globally. When we asked oncologists what proportion of oncologists can get these drugs universally for all patients, you can look only a minority of oncologists in LMICs, maybe half of oncologists in UMICs, and most, but in fact, not all oncologists in HICs. When we flipped this question and said, what proportion of oncologists can get these drugs, but with the risk of catastrophic financial expenditure for their patients, look at these skyrocketing rates for LMICs and UMICs, and again, non-trivial rates of catastrophic financial toxicity in HICs. So just by way of example, let's look for LMICs. Let's pick a drug, doxorubicin. This should cost pennies or dollars per week. Only one third of oncologists said they can get this medicine for all patients. One third said they can get it, but with significant to uh, toxicity or co cost for patients. And one third said they can get it, but at risk of financial catastrophe. Look down here, trastuzumab, now available as a biosimilar. Only 15, 1-5% of oncologists said they can get this for all of their women with breast cancer in their clinical practice. Two thirds said they can get it for their patients with breast cancer, but only with risk of catastrophic financial toxicity. So I think what we've learned is there's pretty good convergence between what oncologists want and what is on the EML. But despite the fact that most of these drugs are old and inexpensive, there are striking barriers to accessing these in most health systems. This means these medicines are not being sufficiently prioritized at the country level. The fact that we cannot get access to these core regimens for basic cancer care with large benefits really makes us reflect on how can we contemplate adding new and increasingly expensive medicines to the EML if we're not ensuring that the cheap drugs with large benefits are universally available. In the remaining um, few minutes, I'm just gonna offer some thoughts about the way forward, the way we might conceptualize improving value in cancer care. Um, so this is an essay uh, I wrote with another one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Alan Detsky, a few years ago, about why is it that patients receive treatments which are minimally effective? And clearly this is complex, but we offered some ideas, I think at, the, you know, at a number of levels, the patient level, the physician level, and industry's perspective. So one can imagine that, and this has been shown over and over again, that the information we share with patients is often not clearly shared, or we use complex terminology or language, which makes it difficult for patients to make informed decisions. Patients also might elect to have low value treatments because they wanna have some control in a life circumstance which feels very much out of control. Prospect theory would also suggest that there is the drive to take treatments because people fear missing out on even the small chance of benefit. And some of this is based on unrealistic expectations driven by media. 
from the physician perspective, I think all of us go into medicine and have a deep-rooted desire to help people. We are trained to often respond to a problem with an action, the desire to do something. We often feel perhaps guilt or inadequacy. So it's easier to prescribe something rather than have a difficult conversation. And clearly, there are external influences, including industry, which shape how physicians practice oncology. And then the other, of course, major player in this space is the pharmaceutical industry. And remember, their mandate is to sell as many drugs as possible at the highest possible price. And while I'm often critical of the pharmaceutical industry in other contexts, I mean, the pharmaceutical industry plays by the rules of a system that we have created. They have a profound influence on the system. And as we've seen early, earlier, they really control the research agenda. So I think there's a number of multifaceted domains here that are driving low-value care. So where will we find the solutions? I think we need to start by having conversations like what I hope we're doing today, honest discussions within our field, honest discussions with patients. I think we need to invest more time and energy in research that will understand patient preferences and societal preferences. I think it's fair to say the current status quo is not good for patients, nor is it good for the health system. I'll just offer some other system level um, perspective. And this is a piece I wrote um, several years ago with my dear friends uh, Sullivan and Pramesh published in Nature, where we encourage our field to look beyond the newest gadgets and technologies and consider what it is that is fundamental to high quality cancer care. So we need to change global mindsets. And some of this is we need to work on unrealistic expectations and work with the media who often overhype marginal gains. As leaders in our field, and especially thought leaders who propagate some of this, we need to raise the bar. Patients expect better. We also need to go to the ground and think about what it is that has the largest impact on patient outcome. And this is getting people into the system when their disease is still early and curable. We need to prioritize education, workforce. We need to invest in the social factors to ensure timely diagnosis. And finally, we need to hold our systems accountable. We need to pay for care, which is effective. We need to ensure that healthcare is delivered in a high quality system. And while we need moonshot initiatives, we need to balance those moonshot initiatives with the cancer ground shot. Finally, I'm gonna share um, just some thoughts about how we might conceptualize recalibrating the priorities of the cancer system. And I, this is something I thought about for years and I call this the last six months of life paradox. I think all of you who look after patients will recognize that it's actually fairly easy for many of us in high income countries in the last six months of a patient's life to prescribe a drug that costs $100,000. This drug probably will not help the patient live longer, but it might shrink tumors on a CAT scan for a period of time. However, during those same six months, it is almost impossible to find the resources to support an isolated patient with terminal cancer who wants to remain in their own home with companionship, food, and good nursing care. And I think we have a fundamental disconnect here in what it is we should be trying to achieve in the global context. And I think collectively, there is remarkable energy, talent, and intellect across the global oncology community. And I think if we pivot and many people are already doing this, but we use this energy and drive for, I think, the core business of what it is that we should be doing, which is compassionate care and treatments which make a difference, we could achieve so much good. So just in closing, I recognize I've been quite critical of our system today, but I remain hopeful that 
current conversations, and in fact, the next generation of, of uh, physicians, but also our patients who serve as the inspiration for much of what we do will drive change so that we can move towards a system that prior to prioritizes high value cancer care. So the key messages, there's a crisis in the value of cancer care. We need to ensure all patients get the treatments that really matter. We should not settle for marginal therapies. Our patients expect better. And finally, all of us need to speak up when the emperor has no clothes. Uh, thanks so much, Chris. And uh, not only that was not only was that a very thoughtful talk, but I think a testament to your work as a body of work that has comprehensively and 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 thoroughly investigated the idea of value in cancer care. So congratulations on looking back and, and seeing how much of an impact you've had on looking at these, these, these very critical questions. And, and thanks for a great talk today. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.